Welcome to the Bully Pulpit from the University of Southern California Center for the Political Future. Our podcast brings together America's top politicians, journalists, academics, and strategists from across the political spectrum for discussions on hot-button issues where we respect each other and respect the truth. We hope you enjoy these conversations. Well, good afternoon. I'm Bob Trum, the director of the Center for the Political Future at USC Dornsife. Welcome to those of you who are here with us and everyone watching remote. Our guest today is Adam Nagurney, who also happens to be a former fellow at the center, where he had an extraordinary impact on our students and our programming. He was one of the great national political reporters of this generation and covered presidential campaign after presidential campaign for the New York Times. He's also the author of an acclaimed new book entitled The Times. He and I will discuss the book for about 40 minutes and then turn to questions from the audience. The book is a monumental and constantly engrossing journey decades of the Times and its impact on America. Why did you decide to write it? And what did you learn and what will readers learn that most stands out to you? Well, first of all, thank you for doing this, Bob. Thank you all for coming. I appreciate it. If you know me, I guess when I was your, when I was in college, I always wanted to work in the New York Times, like since I was a freshman. I knew what I wanted to do, and I was dedicated to that, to accomplishing that. I admired the Times, and I read a book that was read written in the 1960s by Gay Talese, a former Times person about the time. And that always influenced my thinking about what book I might want to do. And I reached a point, it's kind of mushy, I was trying to figure out how this happened, when I decided I wanted to write a book about the history of the paper. There's been other books that have been done. There was a book done on the family, The Business of the Times by uh, Alex Jones and Susan Tiff, and there's this lease book and a couple of memoirs, but I don't think anyone has really attempted to cover the evolution and history of this newspaper through such a critical time in American journalism, in American politics, American life, and of the New York Times. And that's what I set out to do. When I first signed the contract to do this book, which was in 2016, which seems an incredibly long time ago, I didn't know how it would end. I, I, you know, I knew I wanted to write a story about, excuse me, a story, a book about the Times, but I had no idea what it would look like by the time we were done. I didn't know whether the paper would conceivably not exist, as some pundits were saying at the time, or exist in a diminished state. What ended up happening is I ended up getting to write about the transformation of the paper into a digital organization. And I mean that from a financial point of view, because the paper now makes most, I think it's fair to say, of its revenue from digital uh, subscriptions, which that obviously was not the case. And also in the terms of the way people read it and the way it's presented. It's now most people are reading it on their phone. We have, I think as of, the paper has, as of yesterday, I read 10 million subscribers, of which I think 800,000 are print subscribers. So I guess what I learned most of all is that the paper, and this is what I hope people take away from it, is made up of extremely bright, extremely talented, extremely flawed human beings, most of whom I think have noble aims, which is to be part of a newspaper which has the mission of, you know, self-described mission of being the best newspaper or doing the best kind of journalism possible, but also like have egos and fight and are vain and are think too much of themselves struggling through this difficult time as the paper adjusts through decades and decades of change and some devolution. So that's my summary. Okay, well, let me follow it up. When I read this book, I was stunned by the access you had 
to a vast array of sources, including private diaries, mm -hmm. that I think people never thought when they were writing them were going to become public. It seems like a writer's dream. How did it become a reality? Bob, I think a key part of as much as this book is a success in the story it tells is because of the documents I got. So there's an official New York Times archive. Uh, for a while, the paper directed its editors and managers to put aside all their, the word emails at the time, all their memos and reports into boxes, and they put them into the New York Public Library. And I went through tons and tons of papers, or I mean, literally thousands of papers. There were two other things. One is, because the paper at the time stopped telling people to save their, discontinued their archive program in 92 or so, I went to the executive editors and other key people after that and asked them if they would share with me papers they kept. And journalists by nature are pack rats, so they did. So I had a couple of examples where top people at the paper would go up to their attics and come down with boxes and boxes of paper and say, go through it. And all kinds of stunning stuff would be found in there. And the third way was more serendipitous. I think that's the right word. We can't spell it. But I went up to look at oral histories that New York Times executives had made uh, back in the early 80s. Um, they were on some top floor of the Times building in New York. And in the process of doing that, someone who was up there started handing me, legitimately, he thought, we'll see, files of the private papers of the publisher. And I just started going through that. And, you know, most of that stuff was like, you know, thank you for writing and I appreciate your invitation and, you know, boring stuff. But then they'd be like, well, Mr. Trump, I can't make lunch with you on Tuesday. Or I came across a really searing story, which I had no idea about, about how the paper's first black columnist, a man named Bob Herbert, uh, was almost summar summarily dismissed by the publisher who ran into him in the elevator one day and said, we don't want you to write a column anymore. And I followed the correspondence. It was all there. For some reason, they saved it. And they ba the paper backed off because Bob Herbert basically threatened to take it to court. And they didn't want to do it. But the short answer to your question, I guess that wasn't a short answer. The long answer to your question is that the papers were critical. Let me add one other thing, which you know, obviously. You know, I interviewed all the surviving principal players, right? Most of them were still alive. Not all of them, right? And I relied on oral histories at the time. But even the most honest person telling their story is going to forget stuff or is going to remember stuff that's more in their favor. That's just the way human beings are. And when you're dealing with contemporary documents, in other words, documents written at the time, they're not perfect, right? Obviously, some of them are self-selected, no question about it. But they're much more revealing in capturing the drama and the immediacy of the moment. And I you know, I hope this book is entirely 100% accurate. I tried my best the, to the extent that it was. I think largely it's because of my access to these kind of documents. Okay, let me let me turn to that subtitle. Mm -hmm. And let's start with the scandals, including plagiarism, outright fabrication, yep. the lead up to the Iraq war. Can you describe them, give yep. us some sense of them, and discuss how the Times dealt with them? There were a couple of them. Let's talk about the two that you do, two of the ones you just mentioned. One was there was a serial plagiarist named Jason Blair in the early 2000s, and he was ultimately caught, but he was caught after he fabricated or plagiarized dozens and dozens of stories. And this was not an isolated incident. This was in a paper that's supposed to have the finest editing in the world. And obviously something was dramatically wrong. And it was a real embarrassment to the paper. It led to the ouster of its executive editor and its assistant managing editor, excuse me, managing editor, 
It was, as you'll read the book if you have a chance, I think to some extent this is exaggerated. It was uh, tainted, or is that the uh, sort of framed by issues of race? And Blair was a young black man, and there were. And the managing editor. The managing editor was the paper's first black man and got, editor. And, and got blamed for protecting. That's right. And got blamed for being his mentor. Again, this is where it, it's good to be able to do a book versus a story. I spent tons and tons of time trying to unravel that issue. Bob just mentioned was it seemed to me a convenient narrative, which was sort of adopted at the time that, you know, senior black editor is going to check this black reporter. And I don't think it was quite that simple. He definitely did things, again, as you'll see, to promote and advance Blair's career. At the same time, I think that he was always really wary of him and he was not the kind of guy that mentored people. So it was much more complicated than that. I think Jason Blair showed some systematic flaws in the paper including with a particularly colorful executive editor named Howell Raines, who I write about, who was very aggressive in making the paper, you know, beat people and be ahead of the curve and rewarded the kind of, you know, you could say aggressive, but you could say reckless reporting that Jason Blair did. Didn't Blair at one point report on something that had happened in Texas without ever leaving his apartment in Brooklyn? In fact, that was his downfall. It turned out... He just stole the reporting from another report from another newspaper that he read. And he would do stuff like he would tap into the paper's photo document files to get a picture of what the people that he was writing about in their house looked like so he could describe it. I talked to a, a managing assistant managing editor who was in charge of newspaper ethics, as you were, about what went wrong with Bill Sh- with, it, with uh, Jason. And he goes, you know, we didn't have a rule that said that sort of guarded against people making stuff up right it's like it wasn't on the paper's radar it just didn't they couldn't see that anyone could do it when the editor who ultimately bought blair in and fired him called them at home to tell him about these charges because they had been raised in the washington post this was serious stuff he didn't realize he was calling him at home he thought he was call- he, he, call- thought he was calling him on another story down in washington dc that he was supposedly covering you know jason had i spoke to jason too he had drug issues which he talked about pretty candidly behavioral issues. He, he was, you know, very... Somebody told me one of his editors told me he was the most talented young journalist he'd ever met, met, maybe, possibly, but he also was plagued by demons, and that led to his downfall. And ultimately, an episode at the Times, a damage at the Times for... I mean, to this day, if people don't like a story I write, they still they might say, oh, you're like Jason Blair. Older people say that, but, the, you know, that definitely still happens. And the second issue, the second one I was going to talk, talk about was, and this, I would argue, had much bigger consequences, was stories that were written up in the, leading up to the invasion of Iraq uh, under the Bush administration, Bush 43. You know, a reporter at the paper named Judith Miller, along with some other people, wrote stories saying that uh, Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction. And And it buttressed the administration's case, in particular Dick Cheney's case, that we needed to go in there and take them out. And the stories were wrong. They turned out to be wrong. There were no WFD. Now, I want to say, again, it's a nuanced, complicated thing here. Judith Miller became the face of that errant reporting, wrong reporting. She had also written some terrific stories over the years. She uh, she, won, she shared an appeal, sir. She wrote what turned out to be, I think, the first time the New York Times had or any major paper had written about a guy named Osama bin Laden. Uh, he was so unknown at the time that his name was in the fourth paragraph, but she talked about him as a future threat. So it's a little bit complicated, but that coverage is really bad. And that also fed into 
what I was talking about before, they under Howell Reigns. There was such a premium on break the story, be ahead of the curve, blah, 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 blah that he, she was able to get away with a kind of coverage. I had a conversation with a man who was the uh, publisher at the time, Arthur Sulzberger Jr. We can talk about it, but he was definitely an historic figure in my estimation. <laughs> he said that he thought that Jason Blair did more damage to the paper than Judith Miller did. I don't agree with that. I don't know how you feel. I think that Judith Miller was much more damaging, and we, it helped, helped, not alone, help lead the nation into war. It was a tremendous mistake, and one that I think hurts the times to this day. Uh, how did the paper deal with it? It was a long period. Ultimately, they wrote a story examining her coverage and concluding that a lot of it was wrong. The kind of thing the paper does, in my opinion, to its credit, when it screws up a story, it's kind of it's mostly transparent about it. And ultimately, it's a really convoluted long story. But ultimately, she left because of another mess she got involved with with Libby. Do you think that because someone in her position is reporting kind of sensitive national security stuff, developing sources inside the government, that there's a danger of being too credulous and too trusting? And, and what do you do about that? Well, I do. And this is, you know, I talked to a bunch of people, editors, who work with reporters like this. Reporters like this are incredibly good. Um, they can dig in and get kind of information that I can't get. They understand this stuff really well, but they also can fall victim to their sources. It's just part of the problem of being a reporter, part of the challenge. And I would argue that's where an editor comes in. And you want a tough editor to be skeptical and push the reporter to back up what they're saying. And I would argue the Judith Miller thing was as much an editor failure as a Judith Miller failure. I mean, again, that's the way a newspaper is supposed to work. I think investigative reporters are notoriously difficult to deal with. They're, by nature, they're, like, pattern is too strong a word, but they're wary and suspicious of authority and they fight a lot, but it's worth it. I mean, that's where like, some, of, some of where the great journalism comes from. Let's do the other side of the equation. The high points of the times in those four decades. I'm thinking, for example, the coverage of 9-11, the Challenger explosion. What made the Times coverage so exceptional at moments like this? I mean, a lot of people here are too young, but when the Times was publishing the pictures of all the people who had been killed on 9-11 and the biographies, I mean, how did that happen? No, I think that when a big story happens, the New York Times and other media organizations, but I think particularly at the time, it's like this huge machine comes to life. First of all, they have probably more people than they need in the newsroom. There's redundancies of talent that would you know, embarrass you. And it's what I was talking about before, this shared mission. Reporters love big stories. And I think in the case of since say 9-11, everyone realized from that, you know, I, I talk about Hal Ray, who was executive editor at the time. He lived down in Greenwich Village. I don't know if anyone's from New York, but it's near, I'm sure somebody is. Um, it's near the World Trade Center. And he walked out of his townhouse and saw the two buildings burning. So he realized from that instant in the morning, whatever it was, 9, 10, 9, 30, that what a big story this was, right? And I think when an editor realized- uh, How'd he get to the office? He flagged out a taxi and paid him or her $50. Because he couldn't get on a subway then. That's what you had to do. That's a really good question. But I think- People realize they're in the middle of this huge story. And like, in that case, other issues that you have in a newsroom, I won't name the story. I don't have this story, this assignment someone else does. They fall to the wayside because I, I know it sounds small, but like, I think in those moments, it doesn't last. But in those moments, people are really dedicated to putting out a newspaper that's going to capture this moment in history. 
there's another moment in there, another big story. So without all those yeah. pictures, photos of the people who were who died, how did they become so central to the coverage? So what happened, these were called uh, portraits of grief. I mean, the paper won a Pulitzer for that. What happened is that there was a reporter who was assigned. So if you were in New York, and this clearly none of you probably were, like in the immediate days afterwards, you would see these pieces of paper attached to walls all over the place with pictures of missing people. The those thing is thought it was really missing, by the way, in retrospect, with little things at the end saying, if you see this person, please call me. And one of our reporters, a woman named Janie Scott, had been sent out to try to do profiles of the victims and survivors. Again, there really weren't any survivors. And saw these things and brought them back. And they had an idea about just trying to write profiles of all these people who first missing would turn out to be lost. And somebody had the idea of just making them really distinctive, like not just like, um, you know, Bob Schramm, professor, political consultant, you know, all that kind of stuff, but more like Bob Schramm, who like what something quirky about his past, you know, loved living in Cape Cod or something about him that made him really human. And they ran these, they filled up two pages a day with a picture and a brief but very personal biography written by some of the paper's best writers. And it was one of those things that really captured the moment. And um, I think it caught everyone's imagination. And they did them or tried to do them. They might tell you they actually did them, but they until they profiled every single one. And they didn't get every single one. I don't think so. They might tell you they did, but you just couldn't. Yeah. What about the Challenger? So the Challenger, this was the explosion of a space shift <laughs> um, that happened. There was a school teacher aboard, I think seven people aboard, and it exploded. And they had school children all over America watching, watching live as this thing took off. And it was a traumatic event. It was just a big deal. But it, the, the executive editor at the time was Abe Roosevelt. That's why I was answering this question. And he came into the office, and somebody happened to be videotaping him that day, just as a matter of my luck, a Times historian. See these videotapes as these discussions are going on. I think it was videotape, it wasn't it? And he's like, "Do we know this is a big story?" And he thought about it. He goes, "This is a huge story. This isn't just like some accident. The space program will never be the same. Millions of people have saw this on live TV when these people died. All these children." And he decided at that point, he said, "Like this is the only thing we're doing today." They cleared out the whole first section. Every story was about it. It was a huge, important day and a huge front page. And I think that's an example of what you're talking about. In that case, an executive editor, a really smart executive editor, if a flawed one, as this is a big story, this is how we're going to cover it. Yeah. You've alluded to this already, but I, I think it'd be interesting to hear more about it. Because for me, it was one of the most intriguing and enlightening elements of the book. Your exploration of the transformation of journalism itself and how the Times reacted or initially failed to react to a revolution in the way we receive and consume news. Mm-hmm. And if they'd continued to fail to react, I'm not sure the paper would exist today. Yeah, I mean, that is, I think, as it turned out, to be a central spine of the narrative of this book. And it wasn't as simple as I thought it was going in. I assumed going in would be like, people were talking about digital and all these, you know, old guys, mostly guys, were like, ah, it's crazy. It's more complicated. So you definitely had some people who were really resistant or skeptical of this, including Punchsolzberger, the last publisher, you know, they would be like, people are always going to read this stuff on print, and this is just a fad. And, you know, I found one paper where the executive editor at the time said, like, you know, someday people might be getting their news off of, I think he said, black boxes. Like, I don't think he had this in mind. Um, 
but you know, they'll always want to read it on paper. And, but there were people who realized the world was changing and it wasn't just because of age. There were some, you'll see some people in the paper. I would actually, in the book, well, I would in some ways identify as heroes, right? Cause they saw what needed to happen. They began pushing it. And one of them was Arthur Salzberger Jr., the publisher or the up and coming publisher at first and then the publisher. He, um, he always thought the world would change. Um, he began his career as a wire service reporter, in other words, working for, I think, the Associated Press, writing stories on deadline. They would get sent out over the clicker, whatever they had those days. As soon as they were done, he was not wed to the daily morning newspaper. Like everyone else had that sort of culture that he did not. Um, he was also uh, a Star Trek fan and he was into science fiction. So he would say stuff like, I don't care. We have to beam the information to their head. We're going to get into them. And, you know, I think with the benefit of time now, looking at the scope of his career, he's retired in 2018, I think, you could see how important that mindset was to the papers changing. He wasn't the only person by a long shot, whether it was going for a paid subscription model or what you see on your phone today. But I think his thinking allowed that to happen. Now, the Times, I, I, I would argue, began to change in 2017 after my main narrative that's done. The Times was not a pioneer of this. The Times is a conservative, small C organization. Its nature is not to do big changes. So it was a little bit forward, a little bit back, but it got there. And I think over the past couple of years, it, it's accelerated. But there was there was resistance. Absolutely. I mean, it wasn't the digital, the, you write about how the digital separate building away from the newsroom yep and how hard it was to merge the newsroom and the digital folks and people would come over from the digital operation and sit in our newsrooms and feel like interlopers right complete aliens like they would not get taken seriously you know there's one situation where the executive editor at the time calls the digital newsroom and goes uh this is joe lillyveld i'm the executive editor of the new york times now you could argue that's the way a polite person introduces himself right but they were there like, here's another sign of how we're just a bunch of kids, right? And they fit, they felt, I think, disrespected and not appreciated. And it took a lot, like second class citizens of the New York Times, it took a long time for that to change. One of the reasons why the digital newsroom, if you will, was put into a separate building was actually because the people who were pushing it thought that there would be more room for innovation and experimentation if they were not under the heel as it were, of the more traditional news people. But it was a real, you know, it was a real, and I devote a lot of space to this um, to this sort of cultural disconnect. I came across exchanges in the papers you were talking about between one executive editor and the publisher just complaining really uh, intensely about what he saw as an attempt by the head of the digital operation to take over his business, take over his operation. And there's some legitimate concerns here. He, they want to be able to, their feeling is that the news product should be controlled by people who've come up through the newspaper, but the world was changing. And they're now merged completely. 100%. In fact, you know, the, I'm going to use the word paper just for shorthand here. The actual print newspaper is just almost a stepchild now, right? And the first thinking that people do when they come into the newsroom in the morning is think about the digital report. Everything is about the digital report. Yeah, I mean, watching the election the other night, you could go on the Times website, and in real time, they yep. were constantly updating you about what was happening. Yep. That, that wouldn't have been possible 20 years Absolutely ago. not. In the old days, you would have had, you'd pick up the paper in the morning, and you'd have some out-of-date story that often I got stuck writing was 
such, such and such happened for an analysis, but like that doesn't make any sense anymore. So we don't do that anymore. Yeah. Now you mentioned the editors. The paper had a succession of executive editors, one very long lasting, one in the post twice, some there only briefly, and several very controversial. What explains this? And the ten- I mean, people think of the Times as a kind of in a kind of idealized way. When you read this book, you see it uh, all of the tensions and all of the rivalries and all of the suspicions inside the paper. Right, and these people tend to be very flawed people. Listen, really talented, but really flawed. You know, the way the Times works, and I think the way the LA Times works and also most papers, um, is that the people who become executive editors who people who work their way up through the newsroom. They're former reporters, they're former foreign correspondents. Remember, foreign correspondents tend to be lone wolves. They're out there on their own. They're not managers. They're, if anything, they're anti-managers. They're people who are competitive with their colleagues, not collegial with them as a rule. So it's kind of, in a way, crazy to put people like that in charge, but that's what happened. Um, I think that one of the things, and I'll defer to you on this, that makes this book dramatic, I don't read, is that we're talking about these people who are very flawed and struggling in this really difficult job, man. You know, I divide the book into seven sections based on each executive editor. Well, two of the executive editors had to get fired because they didn't work out. It's very traumatic, but it's a very key, important job. But I asked the same question of Brett Stevens, mm-hmm. and he said, well, if you're at the top mm-hmm. and you want to be at the top of the top, then there's going to be a lot of jostling, a lot of rivalries, a lot of angst. Yes. Is that inevitable? I think it's inevitable. And I think, you know, I tell people, if you want to become an editor, I never did that, but if you want to become an editor, I mean, you're going to make more money, right? That's reality. But it's an up and out kind of job, right? Like, it's really competitive in a way that I think that being a reporter is not. And the higher, if you want to be executive editor, the higher you get, the more competition there is for a job. Now, the result is presumably you get the best of the best of the job, but it's not the kind of existence I would recommend to most people. I wouldn't say that the book persuades me that you always get the best. Not always. Of the best. Yeah, no. As you said, you had to fire two and that's yeah, the Times had to fire two of them. How did the paper handle the rise? And although it goes beyond the scope of this book, the presidency of Donald Trump. I, the book ends with the election of Donald Trump. And there's an epilogue that talks about it a little bit. I think that that's a major issue. It still sounds like I'm, I'm averting your question, but I'm not completely, a little bit. For the next book, um, there's two things that are key here. One is, in terms of revenue, the paper experience, like every paper did, what was called the Trump bomb. And I was there for some of that. You could see this enormous increase in traffic coming in because of Trump. And that lasted for a while. But I think that you'll see, you've seen that since then, these numbers have continued, even before Trump reemerged. And I think it's for a whole lot of reasons we could talk about. But it's part of the transformation I talk about. I, I do still think that we'll need to look back at this long term to see whether Trump actually was a transformational thing in terms of the paper's business model or a blip and the paper is back down struggling again. I, I think it's the first, but I don't really know. I don't think anyone really knows. We can guess. The second thing is more complicated. You see this all the time now, is how do you wrestle with covering someone who tells stuff that's just not true, that writes stuff up, right? There's no analog of that in history, really, at least in recent history. And how do you deal with somebody who's attacking you and trying to undercut you? How do you write about a world that's so polarized? 
how do you write in a world where many people in your own newsroom now have have opinions and express them in a way that would never be permitted uh, before? Um, I think all that stuff is being worked out now. We've seen examples of this all the time. You saw a reporter uh, resign, I think, last week uh, after she signed a letter that was pro-Hamas or pro-Palestinian, sorry, which you're not supposed to do. But all this stuff is being worked out, and I think that we're going to figure this out and have a clearer idea of how it gets worked out, Not maybe not for five or ten years. It's clearly one of the big challenges facing the executive editor today and the publisher today. What, what do you say to critics who argue that the Times, along with other forms of media, actually played a critical role in the rise of Trump and are enabling a threat to democracy even today? I think that's a really legitimate criticism. I think the paper is very aware of it and trying to get the balance right. I think there's a good case to be made that there were times toward the ends of the narrative where they got the narrative right. Wrong, excuse me, they got the narrative wrong. Do I think that the New York Times or any other paper was responsible for electing Donald Trump? I don't at all. Do I think it was one of the contributing factors? I do, yeah, or just one of many. It's a struggle that has not ended yet. It's still going on. I mean, you can see it like in these debates about how closely we should be covering the court hearings. Now that Trump's involved in, I think he's done testimony fine, but in New York, should we be writing about everything he says? He's clearly a very newsworthy figure, and our job is to cover the news. On the other hand, he uses the platform to sort of run campaigns and distort things. You said you always wanted to work at the Times, at least from the time that you were in college. What makes it so special, even unique? And what factors account for its continued preeminence in American journalism? You know, I think like if you're in newspapers, at least, you want to work at the New York Times or the Washington Post or maybe the Wall Street Journal, right? Like, that's the top of the top. In my opinion, it's dedication to journalism, the the, the mission of the Sulzberger family, for all its flaws, for all the times it screws it up, which it does all the time, is really something that I kind of want to be identified with. I think the reason it's so dominant today is unfortunately because so many other news organizations have fallen away. And I'm not sure that there's enough market out there to support more than a couple in these sort of subscription, you know, these papers aren't supported anymore by advertising, right? They're supported by- No classified ads. None. Gone. They're supported by people paying subscriptions. And I'm not sure many people are going to be willing to subscribe to five or six newspapers. So that's why I think it's diminishing- one thing the Times has always done is put money into its news report. You know, there's an old, uh, it's a, Souls, a Soulsburger family thing again. The idea is like, if you're running at the tough economic time, rather than doing any cutting, of course they do cutting, but doing real cutting is to put more tomatoes in the soup. That's the quote to describe it, to in- increase the quality of the paper. And I think, you know, in that case, it's to make it more attractive. And I think that in this, you know, sort of damaged market, media market that we have now, the Times kind of stands above because it does that. There are other papers that are good. I'm not like in any way putting it on other papers, but it's not what it once was. When I first started coming to Los Angeles, I lived here for, I guess, 13 years now. But coming as a reporter, probably in 1992 to cover the Bill Clinton campaign, because he kind of camped out here and turned his campaign around out here. The Los Angeles Times was just a fantastic paper. I argue, and people tell me I'm wrong, that it's still a really good paper. People here are really disappointed with it, but it's still better than most papers in the country. But is it what it was in 1992? No. Is any paper what it was in 1992? Is the Boston Globe? No. Miami Herald? No. The world has just changed. 
Didn't the New York Times buy the Boston Globe? Uh, yes. For how much? I think it was $1 billion. How much did they sell it for? Like less than that. <laughs> it was like, isn't it, this goes back to our saying about father versus son, Arthur Salzberger, the senior punch versus junior. You know, the father did not believe the world was changing and he believed in print newspapers and he paid all this money for the Boston Globe. And it was a knuckleheaded decision. It just was. At the time, you could tell it wasn't going to work. And it just, it was terrible. So they had to sell it for- well, They basically gave it away. They basically gave it away. It was just wrong because that's not where the world was going. And maybe that investment might have made sense 10 years earlier. I'm not <clears> sure. <throat> but certainly not. I mean, to me, that's a symbol of the way the, the lessons that were being learned, expensive lessons that were being learned at the New York Times as the world was changing. Okay. You talked about a sequel. You referred to a sequel. Are you going to write it? I don't- no, I don't think so, because I think you'd have to wait five or 10 years to do it. I will tell you that the more I observe what's going on now, the more I've learned from writing this book, understanding uh, the way the world works, the more attracted I am to the project. I you know, I don't th- know how realistic it is. There's one important thing to say here. All those papers I talked about that are so important, I think, to making this lively and interesting, they mostly don't exist anymore. The Times doesn't have an archive project anymore. People don't write memos anymore. They write emails. Emails disappear. There's no repository for, from them. The Times has a email retention program now where emails are destroyed after three years for legal reasons. Most organi- organizations are doing that. So I think that the next book will have to be much more interview-driven with all the flaws that come with doing a book that's interview-driven. We hear about violence all the time in the news, yet we rarely hear stories about peace. There are so many people who are working hard to promote solutions to violence, toxic polarization, and authoritarianism, often at great personal risk. We never hear about these stories, but at what cost? On Making Peace Visible, we speak with journalists, storytellers, and peace builders who are on the front lines of both peace and conflict. You can find Making Peace Visible wherever you listen to podcasts. Now let's uh, turn to some questions from the audience, which I promised I would do at the outset. Yes, sir. So one of the editors that, that you talked about was A. Rook called Amos Anti-Gay I wonder if you could talk about that, not just in terms of the gay issue, but how that prefigured what the Times and many other news organizations have been going through as they try to diversify their ranks and their cover. Question is about Abe Rosenthal, who was for a long time the executive editor, the fact that he was anti-gay. How does that illustrate the paper's efforts and journalism's efforts in general, I think, to come to grips with these fast changes in our society? Adam, if you don't know, this is Mark Schuch's Pulitzer Prize winning journal. Okay, I do. I've never heard that. Well, thank you for the question. Let me answer that in a couple of ways. One is... um. You know, everyone's, I'm going to come around and agree, don't, don't misinterpret the inter, inter, introduction here. Everyone sort of assumed Dave Rosenthal was anti-gay because of the stuff he did, because of the lack of coverage of gay issues for the most part under him. This is, again, where the archives paid off. You know, I could have, like, written everyone, like I just said to you, everyone assumed he was anti-gay. But going to the archives, I found a journal he had written in anticipation of a book he was going to write that he never wrote. And he talked about gay people, and he said, you know, I would appoint one to cover the arts or to cover theater, 
right? Cliche city, right? But it wasn't a problem with the cover of the State Department or the White House because gay people form cliques and they're destructive of the newsroom. I mean, it was really pretty clear what he was saying there. There was a direct result of this, as I think you probably know, that the paper was really slow in covering the AIDS epidemic in the 1980s under Abe Rosenthal. It took two years from its first story before they put it on the front page. And someone asked me the other day whether I thought that the fight to come up with treatments for AIDS would have happened faster if the times had moved quicker. I don't know. So interesting counter-historical. I don't know. But it certainly couldn't have hurt. And when two things happened, when Abe Rosenthal's successor came in, a man named Max Frankel, one of the first things he did, I found that through going through papers, was tell people, I want to put six people covering the AIDS epidemic because I don't want history to look back at us and tell, tell us that we missed this really big, big story, which I thought was really interesting. The other thing was that, you know, Abe Rosenthal reflected his father. Excuse me, Abe Rosenthal reflected the publisher, um, Punch Solzberger at the time. They were friends. His son, again, Arthur, was much different. Different generation, had lots of gay friends. And he, you know, he talked to me about this, and he made a real effort to change the newsroom. And he, you know, he told me that he thought his father was anti-gay. He started taking out gay reporters and saying, well, my father's gone. This is going to be a much different world. You should be comfortable being here. And I think that the atmosphere at the paper and also its coverage changed dramatically after Abe Rosal was gone, after Punchelhorn was gone. I'm a little bit reluctant to try to draw lessons for diversity stuff now. It's just different kind of issues. So I think I would leave it at that. I just think it's different kinds of struggles. I get the question. Yes. I'm curious about kind of the comparison of the trans digital like transformation. What do you think is like Transformation for journalism, or I guess the time, like, is it art? What do you kind of envision being the next art? So, referring to the transition from paper to digital, uh, what's the next large transformation? Does it involve artificial intelligence, for example? So, if I really do, I'd be publishing the newspaper, I'd be making, making six million dollars a year. My guess it is AI. I don't know. I will tell you this knowing the paper, having covered this, examined this. This is the kind of stuff they're thinking about every day, and there are people trying to think about where things are going and all this kind of stuff. But your guess is as good as mine. It seems less clear to me than it would have seemed, I think, that we were having this conversation in 1985 or even 92, when I think digital stuff wasn't that crazy. It's, it's less clear to me where the paper went going. That's a really good question. Yes. So violence of different kinds has a business model. Homicide, drugs, child trafficking, somebody makes money. Since you have lived in the belly of the peaks, then think about or understanding the possibility of using your footprint, the footfall of the times, to promote peace. But usually media scandal story, but that's what gets eyeballs, that's your business model. And in this world of hyper-polarization, please uh, put inside the belly of the peaks, how can I use my media, my power, the most good, to make money, which is it. Yeah, the question is about... Uh... How can the paper or the Times, with its enormous reach and influence, promote peace? Because the stories that tend to get the most attention usually involve violence, crisis, war. Is that the proper role of the paper? 
I mean, I think the proper role of the paper is covering news and not trying to police what is a story. I think news is news. I think what's going on in the Middle East now is news. I think what's going on in Ukraine now is news. And I understand what you're saying. I guess where I would draw the line myself is covering gratuitous violence or, you know, which, which the tabloids do, which papers do. But I don't think that's what we should do. But all the stuff that you're talking about, I mean, I think in an ideal world, we should be helping to bring the world together. But I think that it's important to report on what's going on, which means including all the horrible things and flaws in society. I just think that's what the role of newspapers are. I think the role of government and politicians is to try to end this stuff and bring people together. But I don't think that's the role of the newspaper. I'm not just a newspaper, you're a business. It's nothing. The argument that's being thrown back at Adam is you're not just a newspaper, you're not just the Times, you're a business. So that's what makes this such an interesting topic to write about. Yeah, the Times is a business. Yeah, they're ultimately about making money. But I do believe it's a little more complicated now, which I'll get into in a second. I do believe that ultimately the people there are on the mission of trying to write about what's going on in the world and help our readers understand the world. I don't think generally, I'm about to caveat that, if I can use caveat as a verb, I don't think generally editors and reporters are thinking around, thinking, writing like, let's write this story. We'll get lots of clicks and therefore more people will buy the paper and then we'll go to Bermuda. Or, you know, I don't think that's going on. But here's the one thing I want to say, because I don't want to sound like I'm naive. Part of the transformation I'm talking about is there's more of a premium now on getting clicks, on getting odds. And I think that, I think that's a constant balance that the Times and other organizations have to think about. I think that the paper has generally done, again, it's just me as observer. This is not in a book. A very good job of keeping in mind the mission of what defines the New York Times. But again, going to the next book that Bob decided me to do, I think one of the big questions is how do they do that and still have a product, they hate using that word, a product that people are going to still want to click on. I don't agree that covering, again, some of these horrible things going on in the world is motivated by, just for the most part, motivated by getting people just to want to click on them. I think it's because they're important stories. Does the Times monitor which stories get the most clicks? Absolutely. Yeah. In fact, I read about this in here a little bit because it was just beginning. There's a technology. I mean, that's not the right word. Sorry. I think it's technology that, te- you know, I can go in, you know, I wrote a story yesterday, like a minor story um, about the debate. I can go to my computer and tell you how many people have clicked on it. I, I know that. I mean, like I can tell you what time they clicked on it and how long they stayed on it. You know, on one hand, I'm that's complicated information to give reporters and editors, right? Because on one hand, it is more of an incentive to write stuff that's going to get more people to pay attention to you. You know, on the other hand, it's, I think, to make sure this is going to sound corporate, that the paper is diverting its resources to things that people are, that are really fulfilling and people want to read. But that's the tricky thing I was talking about. We definitely have that technology, no question about it. And we have it right down to one thing we do, and I'm sure every paper does this, you know, they can measure how a headline is doing. And I've seen headlines, uh, I mean, digital headlines. I've seen headlines of my story change to try to get more traffic. And there's no question about it. Like, Putting certain words into headlines, Trump, could actually get more people reading it. Another question? A question just about in your role as a media observer. I wonder if you had any thoughts about the reach unemployment of Will Lewis, as publisher of the Washington Post. When one just looks at his background and his biography, his um, past associations with Murdoch, the Daily Telegraph, 
Does that pretend a change, do you think, in, in focus on the Washington Post? Or, and do you have any personal encounters or experiences with him? And what direction do you think the Post will go? Yeah, I, I think I'm more comfortable talking about the New York Times. I haven't really studied the Post, and I, I'm not the right person to ask that. I will say that we had a CEO at the Times, where I write about, named Mark Thompson, who uh, also came from Britain, also came not from Murdoch, but same, came from that culture. And I think that he turned out to be a really good executive uh, CEO in terms of transforming the New York Times into what it is today. But I'll leave that to whoever does the Washington Post book, which won't be me. Yeah, I, I'll say, by the way, that I think it would be uh, a disaster for the Washington Post to turn in the direction you imply it might, especially given its readership base. I, I think in terms of a business model, that would be really bad. Someone else? Yes, sir. Yeah, we talked some about New Times' coverage of 9-11. I'm also curious to hear more about the specifics of the New York Times being in New York City and how that's influenced their ability to stay over time and as its focus has shifted between New York and international and play, all of those things and those, those differences. And could the New York Times have done this transformation if it was the LA Times or, you know, in, or somewhere else as well? Or is there something specific about New York that has allowed this um, success to soar? Yeah, that's a terrific question. One thing I'm, I'm going to get to your question in a second. One thing I was asked about a lot in New York is whether or not the paper has given up New York coverage for national coverage. And my answer was basically, <laughs> I didn't want to answer that. So, I mean, to some extent, that's true. I mean, some of the New York Times, New York coverage has been excellent. I think still is. I don't know whether a paper, let's say, take the Los Angeles Times, could have turned itself into a national paper the way the New York Times did. I, I live here. I love it here. I, I came from New York, so I still have a little that New York obnoxious you know, miss to me. I think that it's hard. I think that New York has a certain kind of stator, status and stature, you know, for all its negatives, right? That makes it easier for a paper like that to present itself as a national paper. Um, you know, I think the Post tried to do it and it did, the Washington Post tried to do it. The Wall Street Journal does it to some extent, but it has a very specialized kind of audience. So I think it's a really good question. And I think the answer is probably yes. It's very, it's because it's in New York. There's downsides to that too. I mean, you people, you bring a New York sensibility to how you cover the world. A lot of times, the Times has been, and I think sometimes fairly, but mostly not that fairly, fairly criticized for how it's covered Los Angeles, right? For being too New York centric or looking down or making the jokes about traffic or, <laughs> which I really tried not to do when I was the LA bureau chief. But that's a problem. You bring a New York mindset to the world. Um, Part of the transformation that Arthur Sulzberger did at the New York Times was transform it into a national newspaper. He realized, I think, and other people did too, that in order to be a successful organization, you need to have a broader audience. And now I think it's moving to be an international newspaper. But I think, you know, it's, I, you know, if I was to tackle that question in a in a book, I think I would totally wrestle with what you're talking about. Like, could a non-New York newspaper have done that? And I think maybe not, you know? What inspired you to write up from the? Oh, well, this is a question about Adam's other book. What inspired him to write out for good? This is a history of the modern gay liberation movement that was published in '97, I think. Somebody I knew, my co-writer on it, his name was Dudley Clendenin. He used to work at the Times. He was a national correspondent and editorial writer, just a brilliant writer. He had the idea of writing this history. And he went to a mutual friend of ours, a man named Jeff Schmaltz, who was an editor of the New York Times. Um, and asked Jeff if he would want to work with him on it. Jeff uh, had AIDS um, and would go on to die a few years after they talked. 
Like Jeff said, I can't do that for the obvious reasons. That point eight was basically a death sentence. Um, and suggested that I do the book with Dudley. And Dudley and I, and I had dinner at a restaurant in Washington, D.C. and talked about it. You know, I thought this is a great idea for a book, and I agreed to do it with him. That it was that simple. I take no credit for the idea. I just like I take credit for recognizing a good idea and jumping on it, like Elon Musk. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yes, sir. I just had a question for you because in 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 the world today, right? It, it's different than when it used to be with paper, and you know, you would come in the morning and have your Sunday Saturday paper. Well, I was wondering in a world that's that's so click centric, and I. And I use that word very lightly. How how do we make sure that we stay objective in a world that is that is so self centered? And how do we keep that third lens that journalists need to have in order to do what is a good story and a fair story? So the question is: in in a world that's so click centric, how do we make sure that? Journalism is still objective, that it still looks at events through a third lens? You know, I think that's a really good question. I think that's a challenge that we face every day. And when I say we, I mean the whole industry, but I'll talk about the New York Times in particular. I don't think we succeed every day. It's hard during these polarizing, emotionally fraught times, coming up at such a consequential election to remain that way. But I I just think that I, I speak for myself. I just think that I serve my readers, our readers best by trying to be objective is a tricky word, but let's say as dispassionate, even handed as possible in reporting stories. That's what I think the New York Times should do. Now, there are people you get that Bob could bring into this room who would disagree with me. They'd be wrong. I'd be right. But I'm just saying that it's not a undisputed view. I mean, I think that's what we're supposed to do. And again, struggle to do it. I think Trump makes it harder because he changes the rules. And again, because yeah, this is not like a, a Bush Gore. I want to find it easier. A Clinton Dole election. I mean, it's a really high stakes election. Yeah, all the way in the back. I want to see your thoughts about the relationship between that. Did you think about, about the about the curve of rise and fall of leadership during the between the election and the investment of Trump and the election and the no. Do you uh, the curve of readership? How um, fall between the election of Trump and the election of Biden? Is there is, is there any big difference? I have to be a little careful here because I haven't examined the most recent figures. Um, again, it's out of the scope of my book. My distant understanding, not that distant actually, is that it's maintained and increased. And I think part of what's going on here, and again, this goes to the book that Trump just assigned me here, is that. The paper has transformed itself in another way. It's more of a, I don't know the corporate term, suite of products or something. I mean, I'm, that's, they say stuff like that. But it's also wire cutter, and it's also NYT cooking, which I bet a lot of people here use. And it's also the game stuff, which I don't use, but I know lots of people do. And there's lots of reasons why people are coming to the New York Times and buying packages and subscriptions now. And those are the reasons why. And I think, again, you know, I, I saw yesterday that it, it, it topped 10 million subscribers. The stock went through the roof. So I guess they're doing something right. And that's, again, post-Trump. I don't think, if I'm understanding this question right, my guess is that Joe Biden does not bring a lot of readers yeah, to the paper. People say that they seems to be like a friend. Is there a person or sort of bigger race, race writers, readership team newspaper because they want to hear about the latest outrage and then when they find another person gets elected, 
They figure that there's nothing controversial about there's nothing controversial about putting Mr. So, so that question, I guess, could be summed up as is having a, a normal president mean that you're going to have fewer readers? So, my answer to that is I'm I'm sure I uh, look at the numbers. I get a lot more stories when I write about Trump than I write about Biden. It just that's just like the world. But I think the time there's other stuff going on, right? The Middle East stuff, right? I mean. There's all this stuff that gets lots and lots of lots and lots of attention. And and again, what I said to you before, I was dead serious. The subscribers are coming also to play world or to figure out do I make chicken milanese or chick you know, veal tonight. I mean, there's a lot of reasons people come to the New York Times, but the newspaper is ultimately a news organization. And I think what distinguishes it is it does, for the most part, an extraordinary job describing what's going on in the world today. And, you know, people might not be clicking as much on Joe Biden as they did on Donald Trump. But they're sure clicking on what's going on in Gaza right now. And they're sure, sure clicking on whatever, even we could pick up any day, whatever's going on in the world. I mean, there's lots of people who want to read news, and Times is where they go to get it. I want to thank Adam for a fascinating and compelling conversation. I want to thank all of you in the audience and urge you to read what has been called this utterly brilliant book. It's gotten extraordinary reviews. Finally, join us on Zoom on November 16th for a Dornsife Dialogue, where Mike Murphy and I will be discussing the rise of the independent voter. Congratulations, Adam, on a landmark achievement. Everyone here have a great weekend, and Adam will now be happy to sign books. Thank you for joining us on The Bully Pulpit. It helps us a lot when you subscribe and rate the show five stars wherever you get your podcast. Follow us on Twitter at USC P-O-L Future, that's USC P-O-L Future. Follow us on Facebook and YouTube and visit our website for upcoming programs. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.